Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. Only one member of the Bulger family ever wore a uniform, and then only for three months. But it was an extraordinary three months for my older brother, Roger. In 1969, 14-year-old Roger inquired at the Adelphi Cinema in Dublin about summer jobs. He was summoned to meet the legendary Harry Lush, who had run the Adelphi, a jewel among Dublin cinemas since 1943. A dapper, old-fashioned gent, Lush liked my brother and offered him the job of junior usher. Within days, Roger was kitted out in a four-piece red uniform, trousers, waistcoat, jacket and hat, and positioned on the stairs to direct filmgoers entering the 2,000-plus seater cinema. Roger was doing a grown man's job, and so, although a schoolboy, was paid a grown man's wage. Unfortunately, he was also given a grown man's uniform that didn't fit, especially the oversized usher's hat. As crowds spilled out onto the stairs one evening, this caused one Dublin wit to shout a warning, don't kick that hat, there's a man underneath it. The Adelphi aimed to rival the magnificently ornate Savoy, which had opened in 1929 as a byproduct of the Easter Rising. If the Helga gunship hadn't bombed the GPO, the Granville Hotel would not have burnt down with the Savoy built in its place. The Savoy's classical facade still exists, but its luxurious adornments are gone. Its famous starry ceiling, Moorish streetscapes on side walls, paintings of a Venetian palace adorning its safety curtain. Such cinemas were the embodiment of neoclassical grandeur, but most people's first experience of film was at local cinemas that sprang up in suburbs and small towns. I recalled sitting in the balcony of the casino in Fingness with my mother shortly before her death in 1969 as she and every mother in Fingness wept when watching the tearjerker Madame X. The casino became a supermarket, but for years the outline of the balcony remained. I had only to glance up to remember holding her hand, crying because I was upset to see her cry. I'm still not sure I could sit through a screening of Madame X. This is the power of cinema, to unlock memory and intensify emotion when strangers become a collective audience as the lights go down. Most suburban cinemas are now carpet showrooms or bingo halls, but the collective magic of cinema continues to enthrall. Despite video cassettes and then DVDs and streaming services, it seemed that nothing could kill off a love affair with the cinema. But something did threaten this habit for me, not a technological advance, but a virus. Cinemas were closed during COVID, and even after the peak of the scare passed, my habit of a lifetime seemed broken. Somehow a residue of fear meant that sitting in the dark amid strangers carried an element of unease. So only in recent months have I started to visit cinemas again and enjoy a collective experience that can never be replicated at home.
No legendary cinema managers like Harry Lush remain. No ushers wearing hats so oversized they can barely see where they are going. But I have found the same magic when the lights go down, the same blessed trinity of sensations. Firstly, the suspension of disbelief as we allow our minds to get caught up in the story unfolding on the screen. Secondly, the sense of companionship from being part of an audience sharing an occasion. Thirdly, the sense of being in a unique space. When I worked as a factory hand, one older worker once described his best cinema experience. It was in a heavily bombed Italian village he helped to liberate as a soldier in World War II. One night he entered the local cinema when a projectionist arrived by motorbike with three reels of film. The Italian film was incomprehensible. The locals jeered whenever the projector broke down and the bright screen proved a magnet for thousands of insects. But it was the ceiling that seduced them. It was a replica of the famous blue ceiling of Dublin's Savoy Cinema with its myriad flickering light bulbs. He leaned back to smoke cigarettes, savouring being among cinema goers and revelling in the beauty of that ornate ceiling that reminded him of home. Cinema is about illusion, and his illusion lasted until a plane flew across what he had imagined to be a ceiling. He realised the roof had blown off during the shelling, and he had paid in to gaze up at the night sky. But in cinema, everything is transformed. The night sky might have looked fine from the street, he said, but it could never have looked as beautiful as when viewed from a cinema seat. I'm standing with my feet in the river, toes digging into the soft, sandy bed. I lean down and dip my hands in, cupping the gently flowing water, trying to hold on to some of it, but it ebbs away, longing to be on its inexorable journey to the sea. It's the week of my birthday, and I've always loved my birthday. How my heart would soar when the calendar flipped the page from August to September. This year, the heart is unsure, and so I go and stand in the river to make sense of how I got here. When I was young, I would have considered the age I am now old, and yet there's a spring of new possibility bubbling up. I have a feeling that despite the fact that perimenopause is giving me a kicking day and night, this is a really fertile time in my life. In the loamy ground of experience, in the things planted over the years, in the conversations had, the losses, the love, the joy, the grief and the blessings. Things are sprouting to life inside me. This brings me back to the river 
which flows beside my home. Day in, day out, I see it. I begin my morning standing by its leafy banks. On bright days, I bring my coffee down a set of stone steps to where my ancestors would have washed and watch it make its way to the sea. There's a saying, you'll never step into the same river twice, for its waters are continually moving on. It's not asking permission of anyone for how to be or how to move in the world. I want more of that for my own life and find myself drawn to it more and more as I count down the days to the big birthday, the big 5-0. I'm confused as to how to mark it. The part of me that's quiet is drawing more towards solitude. I'm seeking out the wild places more and more to allow myself to revel in all that has gone before. Of course, my friends will say, you have to celebrate it. And yes, I will, but quietly this time. Sometimes on my meanderings through the wild places of Donegal, I see the flash of a young girl running on the beach, the wind whipping her own joy into a boundaryless frenzy. And I remember a time when my days would be spent on the shore near my home. On others, I meet a mother with small children, her holding a small hand as her child's short legs try to negotiate the uneven sand. This is their time. My life looks different now. My children are not of an age to hold my hand anymore. But what has stayed constant throughout all of life's changes is that the places of my childhood and youth fill me with as much joy as they once did. There will never be a time that I drive over the mossy glen and descend into Kinnego Bay when my heart won't quicken. The sun glinting on Loch Foyle will always turn my head, even though it's the first thing I see every morning. There is within us all that child who remembers how to play, how to get dirty in the mud and run until we're red in the face. I am holding on to that child's hand and promising that on this birthday I won't let go that I will remember the joy of a full day to myself. The river reminds me that it doesn't really matter what I do, what size I am, by how much space I take up in the world or how little. Its ceaselessness reminds me that life moves only forward and so must I. I have things I want to say, if only to the river. Words of blessing and of hope come fully formed as I stand two feet immersed. All of the women I have been before and all of the women who have come before me, my mother and my grandmothers and great-grandmothers, I feel their energy thrum around me as I watch the light reflect on the dark pools of the river. There is a knowing now that I didn't have before, a sense of going with the flow instead of raging against a force that is ultimately going one way. That is truly something to celebrate on a milestone birthday. This is a heart's journey, I say to the river. This is the one I'm interested in now. Time is short, too short, and I want to make it matter. Life looks different than I imagined it would be, but I hope that if the 25-year-old me met the woman I've become, she'd raise her busy head and smile. I took my love, took it down 
turned around And I saw my reflection in the snow-covered hills Till the landslide down The name Godwin Mead Pratt-Swift conjures up an image of a man who could be a character from a Victorian novel. He was actually related to Jonathan Swift, Dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral, Dublin, who indulged in his own literary fancies and created Gulliver's Travels. Godwin Swift, born more than a century after his famous relative, was also an eccentric and had the oddest ideas. The remains of what was to have been his most ambitious experiment sit in a glass case in a room at Rosehouse Kilkenny, which itself is the only remaining example of an early 17th century townhouse in Ireland. Inside the glass case is displayed a two-bladed propeller carved from wood and meticulously polished. Beside it is a small wheel. These are the only remains of Godwin's chariot, the first attempt at powered flight. Now ask anybody about the first successful attempt at powered flight and the names that spring to mind are those of Wilbur and Orville Wright who flew at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. But even the Wright brothers were beaten to the starting post by the inventive, eccentric man from Kilkenny. His most outlandish idea was his dream of flying and he almost achieved it. 50 years before the Wright brothers left the ground. Godwin was a self-styled engineer who showed very little skill with anything mechanical. But he had a dream, time and money at his disposal and an exceedingly large dining room. He built his three-wheeled buggy, adding levers, pulleys and an odd assortment of silk, wood and wires, which he hoped would replicate the movement of birds' wings. At the front of his flying chariot was his most ingenious invention, an oddly twisted assembly of wood. It became, almost without alteration, the prototype for the propellers used to this day. Being the clever man that he was, he had the propeller patented, just to be sure. He named his new contraption an aerial chariot, or apparatus for navigating the air. There was one small issue with the newly assembled plane. He had to get it out of his dining room. This was his first oversight, but being a man with a goal, he decided to take down the dining room doors. When this did not solve the problem, he removed part of the wall as well. Why should a decent wall stand in the way of a man with a vision? On that day in 1857, all seemed ready for flight. To top off the proceedings, Godwin's brother John arranged a garden party in Ratfarnham. His intention was to welcome his brother as he and his flying chariot were expected to land gently on the lawn. Well-wishers would no doubt greet the intrepid daredevil with bubbling glasses of champagne. But that's not quite how it all happened. Back in Kilkenny, Godwin was making final arrangements to take to the air. 
A few horses from the family farm were harnessed to pull the chariot in order to pull it up to the top of the battlements of Fuchsrath Castle, which was Godwin's stately home. The moment had arrived for the chariot to fly, but now he faced his second minor oversight. Godwin Mead Pratt Swift had an unnatural fear of heights. This was not a good start for a man who wanted to take to the skies. But he did as anyone with money and the necessary means would do. He called his butler to step in and handle this slight inconvenience at the last moment. Being an obedient manservant, the butler climbed into the chariot, ready to do his master's bidding. The horses started at a trot to build up to take-off speed. They went into a gallop, pulling the chariot behind them, but things didn't go exactly right. Unfortunately, the harness did not detach at the crucial moment of attempted flight, and gravity took over. The entire chorus of horses, silk, wood, wire, and the fateful butler plunged straight down to the unforgiving ground below. We don't know what happened to the unfortunate horses, but the butler suffered enough broken bones to earn him a pension for life. The chariot was beyond repair. The garden party in Ratfarnham was minus one visitor from the skies, and the end had come for Godwin's dream. Fifty years later, the Wright brothers took a giant step in their heavier-than-air machine. Today, the eccentric, imaginative man from Kilkenny is all but forgotten, and in a glass case in Rothhouse, Kilkenny, a mahogany propeller, a wheel, the design of a flying chariot, and patent number 2993 are all that remain of a magnificent dream that failed. My nephew Ben had a twinkle in his eye as he told me that he was very busy at work fencing in butterflies. And yes, he was indeed, so to speak, fencing in butterflies as he was working for a butterfly conservation project in which he was fencing in a habitat of the rare Marsh Fritillary butterfly to paradoxically allow them to fly free. This will allow future generations to marvel at the beauty of the orange, black and cream colours of this fragile species. I was intrigued, but I hadn't called over to talk to Ben about his work, but rather to meet his new baby daughter. Each new baby in our family is a cause for delight, but the birth of this little girl has created a whole new kaleidoscope of emotions and memories for me. Her parents named her Olaf, 
Their surname, as mine was before marriage, is Gormley. So this little girl will be Olive Gormley. My birth name and identity for the first 20 years of my life. As I sit holding baby Olive in her home on the banks of Loch Erne, a mysterious and enigmatic two-sided monument in Bow Island, just up the road from us, comes to my mind. This Janus figure, as it is known, consists of two fused back-to-back early medieval figures. Their calm faces looking in opposite directions. I imagine myself looking back into the last millennium, while this baby Olive looks ahead into the 21st century. The world that filled my early childhood senses has changed so much. It will be for this baby just stories and pictures from a museum of country life. The hiss of tilly lamps, the synchronised swing of the water pump handle, my father's giddy-up as he walked behind his two workhorses, Tommy and Charlie. All children love to hear stories about their birth. And maybe the story Olive will be told is that her father was busy fencing in butterflies when she was born. How different the story was around my own birth. It was my good fortune that, having left my sisters age two and one at home with my mother, who was already in labour, my father found the legendary midwife Josie Hart at home when he cycled the four miles to Belique to fetch her. She in turn cycled to our remote home on her high nelly. My mother told the story of how this treasured nurse, being a practical person, lay down in the bed beside her when the labour turned out to be a long and difficult one. And how, when I eventually decided to arrive, Nurse Hart defeated the limbo she feared was my fate by baptising me with a cup of water before I had drawn my first breath. That splash of water, pumped from the urn below, kick-started me against the odds into a life where, within the protective fencing of my family, I thrived. Girls then needed to be tenacious in a farming community in which boys were more valued, leading to the common question after a new arrival, is it a boy or a child? The arrival of the longed-for boy just a year after my birth, followed rapidly by two more brothers and finally another sister, meant stiff competition for attention. But somehow, for my parents, love for their children was like an expanding rubber band. Being a sickly child had also advantages for me. Being considered too delicate for the rough and tumble of the playground was my passport to the other worlds contained in the classroom's wooden chest of library books. At home, when not able for school, I would be propped up in my parents' big bed and, while there were hushed conversations between Dr Clark and my mother at the bedroom door, I knew only the delicious delight of the blazing fire, specially lit for me in the bedroom's cream-tiled fireplace, Enid Blyton books and Bovril and cream crackers. This memory nestles within other memories of myself, 
ever expanding like Russian dolls as life continues to open up to me. As I leave this new family in their lockside home, I imagine this baby Olive in time, welcoming in the 22nd century, as free and as beautiful as those butterflies who hurled at her birth. Shaheen Shaho Mustore Malamu Muyot Gan Yalog Mohit and Dieback for Sabina Springer. Young spear leaved birches have magic the motorway into a shimmering green corridor, and everything is light drunk May. Along the narrower roads, Regal Beach condescend to Sycamore between forsaken farmhouses and fleeing bungalows as Hawthorne shakes out its white blossom to frill the small fields. Some plants, some creatures, die quietly in corners, are gone before they're noticed. A species even can disappear discreetly with no official countdown without the drama of an asteroid or an ice age. It's hard, though, for an ash tree to hide. Like sycamores, ashes are sociable and flighty. Yet, as we drive west, all across the country, they are surrendering. They are coming out of the hedges with their thin hands up. husband and I both have curly hair. Mine was like that since my birth. His started to form into swirls when he was a teenager. Our daughter, however, has straight hair. Sometimes we the adults ask her, are you sure these are your real parents? At a very young age, she would panic and ask, are you truly my parents or was I adopted? In March of 2022, we were catapulted into a new life. The plane landed, and here we were, in a safe country. Friends of friends, people that just a couple of days prior to our arrival hadn't had any idea that we existed, collected us from the airport, cheered us up, paid for our stay in Muldron Hotel for a week, gave us a bag of snacks, some cash and their business card. Late at night, exhausted, disoriented. Grateful and only semi-conscious, we made it to our floor, found the room, 
and fell into an uneasy but much-needed sleep. Danger awakens our animal instincts. I can almost see myself as if I'm a cat. I'm asleep, but my ears keep moving to listen to the noises that would indicate threat. At 11 a.m., the dark-curtained room was suddenly stricken with penetrating noise and rays of sharp red light that cut the space around us like Jedi swords. We jumped up on our beds, and I instinctively pressed my daughter to myself, mumbling something like, It's okay. It's probably... it's probably... Right. It was only a routine fire drill, scheduled here for every Monday morning. I didn't notice the announcement on the wall when we were coming up to our room. I wish I could laugh about it now, but I still can't. Sirens and explosions are still too close to my consciousness. The war is still taking many lives in Ukraine. We are not as jumpy anymore. We don't react to loud noises as acutely. Although, during our first months in Ireland, I noticed one gray hair on my daughter's head. Only one, but in such a spot that I could not avoid seeing it as I was brushing her hair every morning. When I first got a few gray hairs, I was in my early 20s and lived abroad doing some volunteer assignments that made me stretch mentally and emotionally. Only a decade later did I start to color my hair to hide gray areas. As for my husband, he's 41 now, and for the past five years or so, his style can be officially called salt and pepper. He's had his share of trials, like the death of family members, complete eyesight loss and other health issues. And here is our daughter, this light-hearted and cheerful child, who was only eight years old, when we had to flee the war. I wonder what stresses are accumulated in this one gray hair. Is it her unexpressed sadness about the losses that she experienced? The loss of the comfort of her home, her toys, her friends, visits to grandparents and cousins, school routine, favorite teachers, familiar view from her window, a sense of safety. My husband and I put efforts into settling here, we rented our own place, got busy with work, and thought that we would be okay. But gosh, we forgot to grieve. We were distracted by the demands of life and didn't process our own emotions. There are still losses every single day. Our souls ache and the wounds are being disturbed over and over again. Deaths, injuries, destruction at home. Living in limbo here. We hurt. And we don't know what to do about it. Nobody knows. There is no one right way to deal with it, but there is definitely one wrong way to deal with it. And unfortunately, so many people, and we're no exception to this, let the pain out in a way that hurts those who are the most dear to their hearts, they argue. This law, or should I say flaw, is universal for every human being, but it doesn't make the effects of it any less disturbing. The divorce rate among Ukrainians skyrocketed since the beginning of the full-scale war. A few weeks ago, before our daughter's 10th birthday, I noticed that her one gray hair had curled into a perfect spiral, while the rest of her hair remained straight. The silver spiral shows that she is the daughter of her parents, those who hurt inside and unwillingly hurt each other, those who would love to deal with trials in a more dignified way, but sometimes fail to do so. I felt pricked in the heart at the thought 
that it could be us who contributed to the appearance of her first gray hair. Yet maybe by facing the stresses of forced relocation, we rescued our child from bigger tribulations. The silver spiral stores sadness and pain. And yet it proves that among the turmoil of life, we still belong to each other. On this morning's Sunday Miscellany, you heard Don't Kick That Hat by Dermot Bulger, The Heart River by Kathy Donaghy, Swift's Flying Machine by Patrick Griffin, Fencing in Butterflies by Olive Travers, Die Back, a poem by Moya Cannon, and Grey Hair by Antonia Gunko Carolina. This week's music selection was Ennio Morricone's main theme from the film Cinema Paradiso, Landslide by Fleetwood Mac, I'll Fly Away, performed by the Kosoy Sisters, Shaheen Shaho, sung by Mwirin Nikaulev, and To War from Cormac Begley. And a book you may be interested in, Nets of Wonder, a selection of Olive Travers' essays for Sunday Miscellany, illustrated by Barry Britton, and with an accompanying podcast featuring music by Eamon Travers, has just been published by Beehive Books. The book will be launched at the Abbey Arts Centre in Ballyshannon on the evening of Thursday the 9th of November, as part of the Allingham Festival. See allinghamfestival.com for details. This morning's programme was produced by Sinead Egan. On sound was Tommy O'Sullivan. The broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the series producer of Sunday Miscellany is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.